This week's episode is brought to you by the Blu-ray releases of Sword in the Stone, Robin Hood, and Oliver and Company, all being released on August 6th. Pick them up today. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And hey, George, we've been getting some pretty good responses for the uh, the Communitor so far, haven't we? Yes, we have. It's been pretty exciting. I'm excited. I can't wait uh, to go on it. I mean, we have less than a year to go, but I'm ready. Well, um, there's a lot of planning that has to go into it. You know? A lot of Communicore planning that has to go yes. into it, yes. Yes. We've gotten some emails with some questions, so... Feel free to email us with with questions that you have about the community tour. We'd be happy to answer them for you. Um, please, we want you guys to come. It's going to be a lot of fun. Spots are filling up already. Uh, like we said before, there's only 30 spots, so you kind of need to hurry because I kind of think they're going to sell out soon. Yes, with the rate we've been going, eh, yeah, it shouldn't be too much longer. And we also have those new positions available, the community porters. Yes, community porters, so you can hold our bags. So you can carry our bags all around. Big. It's going to be a fantastic job. Right, right. There's no pay, but you get to hold our stuff. So, I mean, what's better than that? I mean, we'll buy cool stuff, and then you can look at it when you hold it, but you, yep. you can't touch it. Don't touch it. No touching. Sounds- <laughs> no touching. Emperor. No touching, no touching. Emperor's no touching. new groove. <laughs> But uh, learn more about the community tour. You can go to communicorewiki.com, click on the events tab, and it will be right there. We'd love to have you, so definitely come join us. It's time for Disney History! The Mark Twain Riverboat, located at Disneyland, takes guests on a scenic 12-minute journey around the rivers of America, which is actually a lot of fun. I do it every single time we're there. It's it's a blast. Not to rub it in or anything. Even when they make you go up and steer it? Uh, I prefer that I go up and steer it, but that's a special thing. You have to ask the the captain of the boats if you can do that, and generally they let you do it if nobody else is waiting. But uh, anyway, the 5 8 scale Sternwheeler was originally named the Mark Twain Steamboat and was the first functional riverboat to be built in the United States in 50 years when the park opened in 1955. Now, the idea for a Mississippi-type steamboat, it goes back to the original plans for the first Disney amusement park that was going to be built across the street from the Walt Disney Studios of Burbank, California. Obviously, that idea didn't get too far because there is no uh, theme park across the street from Burbank Studios in California, but we still have the riverboat here at Disneyland in Anaheim, California. Exactly, but you're not saying like there's a dragon hiding the park. No, no, no. The, the riverboat has not always been there. Okay, I mean, good, the good. plans have always been there, and but, you know, the actual riverboat hasn't been hiding and the villains have been hiding. I forgot. I don't, I don't even want to talk about it again. I'm done with that. <laughs> well... Okay, so since the Mark Twain was the first functional paddle wheeler built in the United States in over 50 years, as Jeff mentioned, the designers at WED had to conduct extensive research uh, in order to build it like the riverboats that were built in the heyday of steam-powered ships. In each of the three decks for the ship, uh, they were assembled at the actual Disney Studios in Burbank, while the 105-foot hull was constructed at Todd Pacific Shipyards, in San Pedro, California, which is also where the Columbia's Hall was built many years later. Now, 
Admiral Joe Fowler, who was Disneyland's construction supervisor, and he was a former uh, Navy admiral, he insisted on creating a dry dock for the ship that would eventually be along, or that would eventually become the Rivers of America. Now, Walt didn't really like the idea too much that all this land was going to be taken up by this massive uh, excavation, and he referred to the dry dock first as Joe's Ditch, and then later... <laughs> as Fowler's Harbor, which is kind of interesting because when you're at Disneyland today, you can actually see where it is. I mean, they still use it as a dry dock and they they actually call it Fowler's Harbor with the theming, so it's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. um, but Walt was actually a big supporter of the riverboat itself and he funded its own its construction out of his own pocket when all the corporate funds for it fell short. Wow, that's impressive. Um, so like the first time they went to fill the river, the water that was pumped into the rivers of America soaked through the riverbed <laughs> oh so, yeah. no you know i yeah. hate wetting the bed so <laughs> same thing um fowler quickly found a supply of clay that he used to replace the soil st soil stabilizer uh, that they had used to line the river and the second time was much more successful thank goodness uh, mark twain had her maiden voyage on july 13th 1955 four days before the park officially opened for a private party that was celebrating Walt and Lillian Disney's 30th wedding anniversary. Uh, and before the party, as Fowler was checking to make sure everything would be ready for the 300 invited guests, he found Lillian sweeping the decks of debris and joined in to help her. Now, Disneyland's opening day brought further problems for the Marchway, unfortunately. Actress Irene Dunn, star of the movie Showboat, actually had trouble breaking a bottle of water from many of the major rivers of, across America. She had, she had trouble breaking it across the vessel's bow for christening the boat on the show Dateline Disney. And also, during the riverboat's first official voyage, when the crowd moved to one side of the boat to the other to view each of the scenes along the rivers of America, the boat would list from side to side, and water started pouring over the deck because no one really determined the maximum safe passenger <laughs> capacity yet. So clearly things like that were not thought of back then. Yeah, I'm wondering why there wasn't a, uh, a film made on this, you know, like it, You know, I have some footage of Rollies from opening day, and you can actually see people are in the Mark Twain, and the water comes, like, right up to right where their <laughs> feet are, and it's kind of incredible. Well, I mean, like a major disaster film. Oh, oh, let it know, like the like, capsizing of the Mark Twain. So we'll just call it um, Mark Twain, like like Titanic. Like Titanic. <laughs> I'll never let go, Walt. <laughs> so the, the oversight actually caused the Mark Twain to almost capsize on a voyage a few days later, when the ride operators continued to wave more than 500 guests on board until the deck near the waterline, and as the ship, the ship, not the ship. That's different. As the ship traversed the sparsely vegetated river route, it became loose from its track and got stuck in the muddy banks. Uh, immediately, the park established a maximum capacity of 300 passengers, which remains in effect today. Well, and it works, thank thankfully. Yes. Uh, very happy about that. But even though it got a really rough start, the Mark Twain has enjoyed a very successful career at Disneyland. Uh, it's, it's definitely a staple. Now, during its first few years of operations, passengers could actually buy non-alcoholic mint juleps on board or listen to the card and checker players reenact dialogue of that era. Uh, occasionally, the Disneyland band would play music on the lower deck uh, to entertain both the passengers and the theme park visitors on the riverbanks, and you, you can actually still see that today every so often. So the Mark Twain underwent a major refurbishment during the spring of 1995, uh, during which all the decks in the boiler were replaced. And September 24th, 1995, saw the first and only Fantasyland wedding to this day to be held on an attraction uh, in themed clothing. 
A local Orange County couple, Kevin and Patricia Sullivan, exchanged vows on the boat, the bow of the boat, as she circled the rivers of America. The groom's father, Ed Sullivan, a 50-year Disney veteran, donned the classic Mark Twain costume for the once-in-a-lifetime ceremony. Uh, the couple sealed their vows by pulling the ship's steam whistle uh, together. And from atop the uppermost deck, the couple let loose ropes unfurling a ship-size just-married banner across the stern. That must have been pretty cool to see. I wish it I would have seen been amazing. Like that. It was an incredibly great shoe. <laughs> a wonderful shoe. So. <laughs> so, when the Rivers of America were drained in 2002, the boat was noticed to have a considerable uh, hull damage, so of course they had to fix it. It underwent a refurbishment in 2004 to repair the entire hull, which included replacing the keel. Now, for the park's 50th anniversary celebration in 2005, a new, more colorful paint job was applied to the more durable riverboat. Solid gold, right? Uh, only the, the best. Only the best. Only the best, yes. Okay, so the 150-ton, 28-foot-high, 105-foot-long riverboat, uh, which departs every 20 minutes or so, uh, it burns diesel fuel to heat its boiler, continuously heating water into steam, which is then routed to two pistons that turn the paddle wheel. Um, spent exhaust is then routed back to the boiler. It's, it's guided through the rivers of America via an I-beam track, which is hidden under the green-brown dyed river water. It's, it's uh, dyed. It's not it's actually dyed. that color. <laughs> no, no. So, you know, when it starts to show a little gray, I guess they, they go in and dye it again. shows so. a little gray? Clever. shows a little gray, yes. So the boat draws only uh, 18 inches of water because the, wa the river is relatively shallow. And at its deepest point, it's no more than 8 feet near the switch at Fowler's Harbor, where it resides when not in operation. The boat uses clean, fresh water from a tank on board to prevent contaminants from the waters in the rivers of America from fouling the boiler. So I guess you do not want to be swimming in the rivers of America. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. So I'm at odds with this book, and I know a few Disney nerds might get angry for this review, but you know, I got to keep it real. Gotta, gotta maintain that street cred. Gotta keep it real, so. Well, the book is Walt's Revolution by the Numbers by Harrison Buzz Price. And I was really, really excited when I started reading this um, because I knew a lot about Buzz's history with the company. It was published in 2004, and it, it's sort of a memoir and sort of a history of the development of themed entertainment, which hopefully will make sense later. Uh, Harrison Buzz Price should be a name that's familiar with most Disney fans. Buzz worked for Stanford Research Institute and was on the small team that helped pick the location for Disneyland. And from that auspicious start, Buzz would work on an incredible amount of projects for Disney and other leisure-themed entertainment venues, and he would be one of the most requested economic analysis for the theme industry. It's a lot of big words. Um, the book is divided into two parts, and that's where my issues with the book start. The first section is more memoir, and Buzz spends a lot of time detailing the work they did for Disney. We meet an incredible, of cast, uh, incredible cast of characters, including Walt, C.V. Wood, Roy, and many more. It's amazing to have such an insider's look at the first 50 years of the industry after Disneyland. Uh, we're also introduced to companies and royalty, yes, royalty, from all over the world that contract with Buzz and his company, Economic Research Associates, and Harrison Price Company. 
uh, they are all hoping to you know, recreate the Disneyland magic. The amount of details that Buzz provides and the stories of success are almost as shocking as are revealed. After many anecdotes, I was left wondering if I had heard, if I had read reports that should have been redacted. It just seemed like he was giving away a lot of secrets. But, you know, hey, that was kind of fun. Now, the second half of the book is the part that I struggled with. Buzz introduces the concept of roller coaster math, and there are a lot of mathematical and economical concepts and formulas strewn throughout the text. It was really difficult to get through. Uh, still, it's a pretty amazing to see how scientific the entire process is. What Buzz really gets down to is he sort of tells you, here are the steps to decide whether you can build a theme park in an area, have a world's fair, create a museum, an aquarium, or anything that's going to attract a lot of visitors based on where it is, the seasons, how many tourists are in the area, local dollars, yeah, I'm getting a headache already just from thinking about that. There's way too many um, numbers involved in that. And way too many numbers. Different many factors numbers. and everything. Yeah. Uh, it was still interesting, except way over my head. So, now, now, Disney historians are going to love this book for the stories that Buzz relates. And it's also a great book for anyone that's working for or managing a themed business, like a museum, a restaurant, an aquarium, a theme park, something like that. And, and wants a really good look at the process. It's still an important work and adds a lot to the literature on Disney parks, especially the first part of the book where Buzz uh, lets go with a lot of stories. So the book for this week was called Walt's Revolution by the Numbers by Harrison Buzz Price. What we liked, what we didn't like, yays in the booze, 60 second review. So we've got another handful of uh, Disney released Blu-rays to talk to you guys about this week. We've got Oliver and Company, Robin Hood, and Sword in the Stone. And I think we're going to take it backwards, chronological, and look at Sword in the Stone first, um, which is pretty good because this is the 50th anniversary of Sword in the Stone. So I would expect some spectacular stuff. I would have uh, expected some spectacular stuff on the Blu-ray as well. Um, I think we were both kind of disappointed with oh, yeah. that, though. Just a little bit. So this this seems to be a recurring uh, review status for us. You know, it's like, well, you know, nothing extra special on the disc. Yeah. Again, a any anything that you could have. And I know George mentioned this earlier that he has the 45th anniversary Blu-ray of Sword of the Stone, and all the extras no, the, are. Yeah, the 45th DVD. The 45th DVD. I'm sorry. That's right. There was no Blu-ray. <laughs> this is the first Blu-ray. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. The DVD has yes. all of the same extras. The only thing that's new to this disc is a alternate opening uh, where Wart meets Merlin, and I mean it's cool to see that, but yeah. I mean. I don't it's know. It's nothing spectacular. It's not. And there was some other thing we discussed about uh, before we started recording, and that was how it actually looked. Yeah, usually the, usually the transfer to Blu-ray for the animation is usually really, really good, if not spectacular. And this surprised me. And the fact that the Sword in the Stone did not look like it was transferred very well, or it not it it, it had been mastered very well before the transfer. You know, the only thing I can possibly think of is that it, you know, the the original film itself. I mean, it was made during the time where it was very cheap and easy to make these kind of things, and it wasn't made yeah. all that well. So it's probably this is probably the best it ever looked. But mm -hmm. on Blu-ray, it doesn't really matter all that much. It's not. It doesn't look fantastic. 
Yeah, I was surprised at that. So, you know, if you're a big fan of Sword in the Stone, which I admit it's, it's a good movie. Oh, I it's a fantastic it. movie. Yeah. There's no doubt about yeah. that. Love the movie. Love, you know, the scenes. Uh, unless you really love it, that's the only reason to pick this one up. Yeah. You know, we were talking about the quality difference between the releases on these films. And the uh, I go back to the Rescuers that we reviewed months and months and months ago. And I was surprised at how bad the Rescuers looked. Yes. And it the Rescuers was released after Robin Hood. So I guess that should be the next thing we talk about. So yeah. this is the 40th anniversary of Robin Hood, the release. And I found that this one looked a lot better than Sword of the yeah. Stone. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't fantastic, but I, I think it definitely looked a lot better. Um, t between the ten years between the making of the two films, I think definitely helped a lot. Um, mm -hmm. The film itself, I still enjoy. It's not a obvious Disney classic to a lot of people, but I mean, if you don't already own it on DVD, it's probably a good idea to pick up the Blu-ray. Um, yeah. What about what about the extras? I was surprised with the extra too. There was nothing really special on this either. There, not at all. There was one new thing I thought, right? Wasn't there? Um, oh, there was a deleted storyline. The love. Oh, the deleted storyline. Story yes, yeah. yeah, the love line storyline, which was really interesting. Yeah, it was cool to see that. And you can see how they they would have added, and how they were always working on the different uh, facets of the storyline. Yeah. And what they had created. You know, I thought this one looked. Uh, I it looked a lot better than Sword in the Stone. Um, but like I said, it, it seems like it seems to be rather hit and mix with some of these hit and miss with some of these films. Yeah, they they keep the recycling the extras yeah. from their previous DVD releases, mm -hmm. which is kind of upsetting, especially for anniversary milestones like this. You would think they were do something a little more, maybe a retrospective, getting some of the cast if they could, but apparently, apparently not. Because yeah, the Sword and the Stone had the uh, Great Little Sherman Brothers mini documentary that, which is uh, wonderful, by the way, which was done by Jeff Curdy. You know, yes. thing else. No, no more name dropping, but it would look like it was transferred directly from um, DVD or VHS, actually. Yeah. And at the end of it, I think it had the Vault Disney tag. So I'm thinking, did they record this off the Disney Channel? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even do the work to update the tags at the end. No, no, not at all, not at all. So, you know, so far, you know, I think Robin Hood is a much more enjoyable disc uh, for this purpose, the way it looks and the way it sounds. Mm -hmm. You know, because I love how the sheriff of Nottingham is just a southern. Well, anyway, anyway, <laughs> we'll, anyway, we'll talk about that part of the film as it is. So, so the last film that we're going to look at is the 25th anniversary of Oliver and Company, which is hard to believe it's been 25 years. I know it kind of makes me feel old and I'm not even that old to begin with <laughs> because I remember seeing this movie in the theater when I was a kid and I, you know, I, I love the movie. The movie's great. I love mm -hmm. it even more now because I'm a big Billy Joel fan and now I'm like, oh, Billy Joel is in this movie. That is way, makes it way cooler in my book. Yeah. But, back um, in the time you didn't, yeah, this is sort of when Eisner was pulling some B-list stars to be in films and everything like that. Not that Billy Joel was a beat, but he was not an actor. Yes. This is his first acting role. But, you know, the music, of course, is really well done. It's wonderful. Why, why yeah. should I worry about the music? Yeah. We've got street savoir faire. <laughs> um, you know, this is this is sort of uh, before The Little Mermaid and before they had the massive rebirth, the second golden age of animation. So you can sort of see that, mm. how they're growing using computer animation. And, and I love the look at the city of New York, at New York City. It's it, it's such a fantastic, you know, late '80s, dirty modern city. Yeah, that you yeah. Don't see often in a Disney animated film, but you know the downside to this disc though is that again yeah. there are no new features to it. It's all recycled from the last DVD release, and it's mm -hmm. it's not even a remastered um, 
uh, touched up version of the film too. I noticed it did look a little iffy at times, and I, you know I'm hoping yeah. for some other milestone you know, uh, anniversary they they will restore it a little bit better. Um, <laughs> but I, that hope. doesn't stop me from enjoying the film. I mean Billy Joel, Bette Midler, Huey Lewis, yeah. all awesome. I, I love the film. Yeah, that was that was a good one. We enjoyed it, and wow. So looking at these three, I mean, of course we got all three of them. And what I would recommend people, I would think Oliver and Company and Robin Hood are definite purchases. Yeah. You know, Sword in the Stone, there's just no major reason right now to pick it up unless you need it on Blu-ray. Yeah, I guess if you don't have it already, then uh, definitely worth picking up. But if you do have it, it's really not worth upgrading because, you yeah. know, you know doesn't, there'll be another anniversary in a couple of years anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, it's still a great movie, but still. It is a great movie. So. They're all great movies. It's just, yes, you are. know, if you have it, you kind of don't need to update. Yeah. It seems like they're releasing it just for the format now as opposed to giving out anything special or unique with it. But, you know, I do have to admit, after watching Oliver and Company, I think I know where our next Communitor is going to be for 2015. Got, uh, it's got to be New York City, right? Yes, we're going to hunt down Billy Joel and Joey Lawrence and all those people. and Make them travel or surround New York and see the yes. Oliver and Company uh, filming locations. And do all <laughs> the filming locations. Because it was an animated <laughs> film and they have <laughs> filming locations. Inspired by... <laughs> Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> so the next time you're at Disneyland and you visit the Jolly Holiday Bakery, which, by the way, is quite delicious, look up and you will notice a Mary Poppins on the weather vane. Now, Mary Poppins is holding a bag, and inside of her bag are two pennies that obviously you can't see because they're inside the bag, but there are two pennies, one from 1955, obviously when the park opened, and from 2012 when the Jolly Holiday Bakery opened. And a little hat tip to my friend Ryan who pointed that out to me uh, when we were walking around the park the other day. See, I thought they were puffins in bags. No, you can't fit a puffin in a bag because they can't breathe in there. And then you feed them to bears, right? No, you don't want to feed animals to bears. That's just wrong. And now we're going to get, you know, letters from PETA. Thanks a lot, George. PETA? Ah, oh, those make good No, 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 not, that, not, not those PETAs. Oh, the no? Pet, the, you know, the pet humane society people, PETA. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I'm going to direct them to you, all of them. Oh, I just always thought it was, you know, puffins and bags feed the bears. Oh my you know, gosh. It's a great melody. It's a great oh melody. Oh my for gosh. It. No? No? Okay. Too soon? Well, no? Okay. Well, way too soon. So, all right, guys. Well, thank you guys so much for watching and listening. Yeah. Be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on the iTunes. Yes, because we love the ratings, especially those nine star ones. Heck yes. Uh, e yes, we need more of them. More. So, email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com with any questions, comments, concerns, complaints about. PETA? You know, we're not complaining about PETA, but if you want to complain no. to PETA about, PETA about George. Us. George me? specifically. I didn't say it. You said it. Not me. Oh, not okay. me. Anyway, be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. Yep, and you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Imaginerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And don't forget, you can now call us on the Communicore Weekly hotline at 424-785-4628. Yeah, and that number again is 424-785-4628. And for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.
Daily.